Hello, good people. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. If Say More has struck a chord with you, and if there's somebody in your life who you think would really enjoy tuning into these conversations, please take a moment to share Say More with them. Building the Say More community, it really matters because there's a growing number of us who have decided that no matter the complexity or challenges that we see around us, we're still going to do our best to not only not do harm, but to make things better. That is a beautiful and bold commitment, and the best-kept secret, y'all, is that there are more of us than we're led to believe. So share, say more, and if you have a moment, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. It helps us get these conversations out to a broader community of people. We've lined up some incredible episodes, and I'd hate for you to miss a single one. Thank you for your support. Now let's get into the show. Seeing people killed, watching people die it just really transformed me forever and really kind of centered me in terms of I'm a messenger, I'm a storyteller. What a place I stand in the world, no matter what form of role I have, you know, I am a messenger for others, particularly those who don't have the microphone, so to speak, that I have to share their experiences and to share the knowledge that they have carried about inequities, about systemic injustices. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. Hey, Say More family. I'd like to start today's conversation with a line from a poem that I love. Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. He writes, Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. (laughs) I love that so much. And if you know me well, you know that I refer to this quote often in my day-to-day life because it just hits so close to home. So much of our life, so much of growing up is about owning our multitudes, accepting and embracing the different parts of who we are. My guest today, Jimmy Briggs, is a true embodiment of owning one's multitudes. He has a long career as a journalist and activist. Most recently, he became a philanthropist, joining the Skoll Foundation as a principal, investing in social entrepreneurs across the globe. In each of his roles, Jimmy remains focused on his core purpose, being a voice of those who are often denied a mic and fighting against social injustice. Today, Jimmy and I talk about our common paths working to not be defined by the expectations of others, what it means to take care of yourself while trying to build a better world, and what are some of the difficulties that arise from choosing a life focused on social impact. I'm excited to be talking with you, and you know, we can dig in. And, you know, usually what I do, Jimmy, and say more conversations is I start by asking folks, what's something that's cracked you up lately? But what I know to be true is that there's so much going on right now that that might feel like a a bridge too long to travel. And so I'm going to give you dealer's choice where you can either share something that's cracked you up lately or you can share something that is inspiring you or soothing you these days. Something that's that's cracked me up. I don't know if you know this, I feel like not, but if you don't, I've been remiss and not t- I mean, telling shit is part of my life, but I actually have two daughters. 
One of them is much older. One of them is much younger. My younger one is three years old. And my three-year-old daughter, I was with her yesterday. And she was, I was trying to, I was, you know, reading, you know, giving her dinner and all that. And, and she was just, her expressions and her, her phrases that she was using, that she was using in our exchange of her dinner just made me laugh. And, and I think she said something like, and she's three years old, mind you. Uh-huh. And I asked her something, I asked her something. She said, response. And I said, can you repeat that? And I hear you. And she's like, never mind. And the way she said, never mind, it just cracked me up for a three year old to say, never mind, the way she did. Uh-huh. And it just, you know, I, I had a stressful work day. And obviously, the, the, you know, the world itself is a distress, ever more so now in this, in this period. It just was a, a kind of a moment of levity. It was, it, was, it was a small thing, but it mm-hmm. just, it allowed me space, it, allowed, it gave me license to laugh. Yeah. And I just so I appreciate it. And that moment, I just appreciated that opportunity. You know? Yeah. I love that. And I can kind of hear the never mind, like, you know, three little tiny three-year-old body, like as if you had just had this long, many years and many miles traveled. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I can yeah, hear it. Yeah. yeah she, 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 she spoke as if she was an elder and then she gave me yeah. side eye when she said it. So like, <laughs> I like, it really cracked me up. The side eye plus never mind. Like, wow. Wow. Like, you, you just you gave me what I needed in this moment. <laughs> yes, yes. That's amazing. I love that story. I love that story. You know, I mean, I think, I don't know, this may be, you're talking about little ones doing something that makes you laugh. Now, this may be me telling on myself too much, but one thing you probably don't know about me, Jimmy, because I try to, you know, manage it and self-regulate, is that I come from a long line of women who can cuss incredibly well. Mm. Like, I mean, they're good at it. And as a result, (laughs) I am excellent at it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm really good. And so something that happened recently, and it involved what you just said made me think of this. It involved this beautiful, beautiful little boy. I'm not going to say his name, uh, who was the son of a good friend of mine. And we were walking down the street and there was like a little puppy that, you know, came up and wanted to play. The owner was there. So everything seemed safe. But then the little puppy, you know, got hyped because he's a puppy and tried to like jump up a little bit. And his response (laughs) was like an elder who had been around too many dogs in his life because he said, get down, effing puppy. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Yep, yep, he did. And I was there like, uh, 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 mm, uh, sorry. Um, And you know, when when children cuss because they're mimicking, right? right? The thing that I've been taught is that you don't give it a big reaction because any big reaction even a negative one of don't do that invites more of it. That's right. So, you know, so the owner of the puppy was like, oh, and I was giving them the signal, mm-mm, mm-mm, take it down. And then, uh, you know, we just sort of moved on. And then later I said, you know, baby, you can't say that, you know, and, and tried to make it something that was not a big deal. Um, but the also thing, Jimmy, if I'm honest, is that I really wanted to laugh. So that was the <laughs> thing I had to like regulate in myself because it was really funny, right. even though I had to manage it. So that was interesting because I admired the skill and proficiency with which this child used that word. It was perfectly delivered, timed. Everything about it was exactly right. So, you know, and yet it was wrong. <laughs> I, I, you know, that, that's something we shared too. I don't know if I, I, I don't, I don't know if I come from a line of, of, of Briggs men or Briggs family members who curse, but I know it's been uh, elevated for me very recently that I curse a lot in my personal life. <laughs> like when I when I, when I, when I have, have the professional hat on, 
I can tamp it down because I'm thinking about it, you know, as you know. Yeah. But yeah, if I'm, if I'm my guards down, even with colleagues or friends, it's like it's it's like a flow. You know, it's like wow, I, yes. I, I do curse a lot. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to learn this about yeah. you, Jimmy. We're not going to exhibit that talent right. in this conversation, but maybe you know, offline as we talk yeah. about the events in the world and all that's happening, yeah. we might be able to allow ourselves some uh, some good or good profanity. I gotta um, say, though, that's Jermaine, good to know. No, I gotta say, yeah. I, I know you agree with this. I, I feel like, and it, to be very specific, I feel like you know, cursing or, or when to use curse words and how to use it in a way that it feels natural and, you know, not offensive. I feel like it's a part of our culture. I feel like it's woven. Yes. It's like somehow it's just like, you know, certain curse words that feel like, particularly black culture have been adapted in such a way mm. that they just feel, you know, part of the vernacular, you know, yeah. it just flows and, you know, no eyebrows are raised, no offense right? taken. Yes. You yes, know, it's yes. just, it's, it's how we, how we, you know, use the language, you know? That's right. That's right. There's a there's a rhythm and a beauty to it. Right. And as my mother has always said to me, she said, some things need to be cursed. You exactly. know, like there's something exactly. about the power of it. Like some things need to be cursed. And that's, that's, that's right. real. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, right. God. Shout out to mom. Yes, I love you. Okay. Moms. So <laughs> all moms, all moms. So so talk to us, Jimmy, a little bit about your story and, and what I mean when I say that, because people say that to me, like, tell me your story. And I, I'm always kind of at a loss. I'm like, I don't know what my story is. I'm here with you now. So what I mean when I ask you that question is talk a little bit about what you've experienced in your life that led you to choose journalism and teaching and philanthropy and equity and organizing mm. as vocations. Like you actually have a multifaceted yeah. career. What is it about your experiences over your lifetime that led you to make those choices? To be honest with you, Selena, I, I th I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Maybe it's, it's this, you know, this kind of um, chronological point of reach to my life. I feel like that, you know, my, my age, um, mm -hmm. I'm not old, but I'm not young either, you know, um, yeah. mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, really in a space where being a space, it's part of my journey where I feel it's important to have reflection on what got me here, how I got to this place where I stand now. And I'll be honest with you, Selena, I think a lot of it, you, you said, shoot, you said, you mentioned choice. I would say ever more so at this point, I would say a lot of it, I credit to the divine, to God, okay, the universe, yeah. mm -hmm. I, I, you know, to fate, you know, however people want to receive my words in this, this regard. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think, yes, I did make certain choices, but I think, I think really, it was really for my part, an, an attitude of openness, being open to where the journey took me yeah. and, 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 you know, making choices of, you know, taking steps that may have seemed counterintuitive to my family, especially my parents, to my close friends, to my, to my brother, I have, a, I have a sibling, to my extended family, loved ones, to my home church in St. Louis, Missouri, where I grew up. Yeah. I think being open to the opportunities that came my way, open to the people whose lives crossed my journey, sometimes fleetingly. My mother was a teacher, my father, blue collar worker, worked at a power plant. And I think, you know, growing up in a, in a period where there was court order busing in my community, you know, court order desegregation where I grew up in Missouri and seeing how that unfolded and the, and the language around that, both from white counterparts, but also counterparts who share my, my skin color, who, who share my racial identity, mm -hmm. the tension of that. I always felt, always maintained a curiosity about the world, about people in it. Yeah. You know, my, my people have known me for a long time. I always talk about how, even as a kid, 
without even understanding where it was or who lived there, I had this idea that I want to move to New York City. You know, <laughs> growing up in a Midwestern city, I, I, you know, uh-huh. you know through, through pre-adolescence and my teen years, I always said, I'm going to end up in New York City. Like, I want to be in a big place. I just hear things about New York. I watch TV. I watch movies. And I just see who, and from, what, from the depictions I see, I saw at that time, Tulane, it was just the vibrancy, the diversity of people, the energy, yeah. the cultures, the languages. It was so attractive to me. And um, I just felt like that's where I'm going to be. That's, you know, some of the things inside of me said, that's where Jimmy Briggs needs to be. That's where I'm going to thrive. And how do I get there? At the same time, I was a shy kid, partly because, you know, I had a late growth spurt, partly because I didn't know where I fit in in my school. You know, this kind of tense environment where there was court order desegregation. Yeah. You know, and resistance to that, you know, some quarters, you know. And so I, I found refuge in books and I found people like James Baldwin was, a, was a, who I consider a muse, Gordon Parks and others, you know, writers of all backgrounds and identities, across gender, across race, across nationality. I, I just, I found refuge in books and the, really books kind of opened up the possible, opened up, you know, my imagination to what was possible in the world. And I knew that somehow I wanted to be a storyteller as well. And so um, I ended up moving to New York City after college. And actually, Gordon Parks, you know, who I had the opportunity of meeting in his later years, was a mentor of mine. And so I understood early on that, like Gordon Parks, that not comparing myself to him, but following his footsteps. Yes, yes. One could lead many lives. You could be a journalist. You could be an, an activist. You could work in philanthropy. You could mm. be a writer. You know, you could wear more than one hat in your lifetime and have impact and have authentic voice and have credibility and all the spaces you chose to exist in. I love that so much. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, the quote of around multitudes, right? I say it all the time, own your multitude. You know, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I think that is just exactly it. And I appreciate so much you saying that you didn't take this linear mapped out path. That resonates with me personally, Jimmy, because that's also true for me. And I also heard you say something that resonates, which is that the choices you made, you know, the the steps you took didn't always make sense to people who loved you. (laughs) And I think there's something to that that's so profound. I remember, you know, when I started my career, I was in business strategy consulting, right? Because I had been in some of those what I call talented 10th programs, you know, that are for intellectually gifted black children that my mother and father worked very hard to get me into, you know, when in my very early days, folks were saying I couldn't learn well or easily. Mm. Like there's a whole journey I've been through around learning, but I've always, always, always been a reader based on what my parents taught me. And so I was in these programs that were really steeped in pushing for what was a fairly standard definition of black excellence, Mm. right? It was one that came from deep knowledge of black history It was one that, you know, has in some ways fallen out of favor, you know, amongst younger folks of color and younger black children. But it was about you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. You're going to have to make sure that you present yourself in ways that show you are exceptionally good at anything you do. You must present as close to perfection as you can achieve and you cannot fail. Right. And I understood the spirit of it. It was love and it was about ensuring my safety and my success. But what happened to me is that when I started in the business strategy space, 
I learned skills I deeply value and often draw on today, but my heart wasn't in it. (laughs) You know, my heart wasn't in it. And so when I made the shift to focus on social impact and organizing and education, there were a group of people who I loved, who loved me very much, who were deeply disappointed. And it took quite some time for me, Jimmy, to really reconcile that the choice I made that I believed in would actually disappoint people who I loved who loved me. And I I wonder if any of that resonates because there's something about when we don't go a sort of linear path, it can create worry and fear and even disappointment in in our families and communities. Did you have experiences with that? I did, Tulane. Well, you and I have similar similar journeys, I can tell. Um, I mean, yes, you know, my parents invested heavily on me, pressured me, you know, extraordinarily strict. I mean, I think that's why I'm such, I won't say I'm lax as a father, but I, I'm much more permissive than my parents were with me. But now looking back, I understand that stri- the, the, the kind of this, this tightness, maybe they recognize something in me, kind of a wanderlust spirit, kind of a, a, you know, an openness to the journey. But I think also, you know, they were raising a black man. Mm-hmm. And so they had to, they had to be strict with me. But as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, my church, the church I grew up in in St. Louis, Southern Baptist Church community. And just, I just fondly, you know, and, and I carry I carry them with me in my heart and my thoughts, you know, to my bones, I carry them with me, the people in my church, you know, who are working, you know, and, 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 and you know, probably, probably the same experience, probably have the same recognition to Lane, but, you know, they may have had blue collar, labor intensive jobs or menial jobs even, but on Sundays, they were polished, they were pressed on Sundays, mm-hmm. their, their best clothing. And I just remember, you know, just, and I, I, I love them so much. I mean, they, when they heard that I was doing good in school or had done well in some competition, academic or athletic, you know, after church, they pressed that crumpled dollar bill on my hand or that 50 cents mm-hmm. or that $5, you know, and they wouldn't make a big deal of it, but they, you know, they give me a hug and the ladies and the men, you know, they were proud of me and for me and, and, and whatever little thing I, I did, they heard about, they would ask my parents, how's Jimmy doing? Yeah. And I just recognized later understood the young people in that community and whom they saw promise and whom they, whom they saw light. They were investing their own hopes and dreams that we would go to the next level, that we would achieve and have an impact on the community overall. Yes. And I, I, I still take that to heart, you know, that all the people who invested in me financially, emotionally, they poured everything they had, poured what they could into me. I owe it to them and to myself to be the best I could be and to be of service to my community. Yes, yes. And that resonates with me so deeply. And I have been, <laughs> you know, on a journey around that, around that sense of responsibility and duty even, right? Because it's a gift for me and it's a blessing to have a community of people who have poured into me and to whom I feel I owe something. It can also be something that feels like constraint, right? And pressure. And so I've had my own experience of how do I hold that responsibility with a light spirit and a light heart? How do I not translate that into less ability to listen to my own voice and nurture my own creativity? And I feel like, Jimmy, you have done that. You talk about this responsibility and to whom, you know, much is owed for you, but you are also an artist and a creative and a, you know, you're a writer, you're, you're a lover of music and jazz. So how do you hold that duty with a light heart and spirit? Because it seems that you do. 
I'm glad it seems that way too late. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talk I'm about it. I'm glad it does seem that way. <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm that successful that it seems I'm holding it with lightness. Um, no, seriously, Tumaline, real talk. I mean, I, 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 um, I know you share this too, but it's fatigue. Yes. The, the, thankfully, the lightness wins out. Yes. I'll put it that way, the lightness wins out. But there's, there's a heaviness at times. I mean, um, I feel you can't walk through this world with open eyes and open, and open heart and not feel it at times. I mean, I guess yeah. the, 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 the importance, the risk is of taking on the heaviness in your heart. I mean, as a journalist, Tulane, I'm sure you have the same experience. I, I learned, I would say I learned the hard way, up like that, I learned the hard way, huh. the, the, the risk of taking on the trauma, the pain, the weight of emotional weight of others, wow. you know, unnecessarily. It takes a toll, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I just, I try to channel that, channel that weight, channel that trauma, that pain, whatever I may be taking on mm-hmm. uh, unknowingly and putting it into the work, putting it into my passion. And I just feel like, you know what? I, I got to stay on the job, you know? Not that there aren't others behind me or in front of me doing the job, but we got to do what we can when we can, you know? And uh, for me, I, I feel, I just feel blessed that I have a credibility not only philanthropy, but also in journalism and in writing and, and speaking, you mm-hmm. know, to students, you know, to convenings, to, you know, using my voice to convey the stories that I've heard, to convey my experiences in a way that can be transformative for others. And I feel like you, Tulane, you're, you're amazing at that. I've seen you in action. I've seen you in the world, so to speak. And I know you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I think those of our generation, those who are journeying particularly through not solely, but, you know, in the, in the U.S., in this society, through the Black American experience, I just feel that we have a certain opportunity and responsibility yeah. Yeah. To, to, to hold the light, to hold the light up, hold the light up. And, 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 and uh, if someone else's light is dimming, help them stoke it so that it shines brightly again. Yeah. And I mean yeah. that because um, I think about this generationally. There, there's many people who sacrificed for us to get where we are, and I just, I, I don't yeah. want to let them down, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yes. I mean, so we're going a, a different direction than I thought we would, but I'm grateful for it because it just resonates. It's like witness, you know, bearing witness to each other. Um, and I bet there's a lot of people in the same or community who can relate to what we're talking about. But I do want to say I recently heard Dr. Bettina Love talking, you know, at a conference. For our listeners, Dr. Bettina Love is a professor at Columbia University best-selling author and an advocate for abolitionist teaching, a practice that pushes for equity in schools. And she said, you know, I was not put on this earth to fight racism. And if you think I was put on this earth to fight racism, that's actually racist. I was put on this earth to live my full life, to have full creative expression, to be in relationship, to be of service, yes, to humanity and others, but I wasn't put on this earth to fight racism. I have to fight it because, you know, it's what, you know, y'all gave me. So I must. And I do. But it wasn't actually why I was put on this earth. And when she said that, I paraphrased somewhat, but directionally, that's what she was saying. Um, You know, that really stuck with me because I think it's a constant sort of balance because our ancestors, you know, and we, we ain't going far back. You know, as you said, you don't claim youth, but you are not an elder and you went to schools that were impacted by you know, legislated segregation. Like we ain't talking about ancient history or any even close. We're not even really talking about history. You know, that that's that your childhood is current events, you know, from a historian's perspective. Right. So so there's that. 
But I also think about like that sacrifice. You know, if we don't experience joy and if we don't feel like we are thriving, I don't know if that honors a sacrifice either. And so I've been doing a lot of daily work around, you know, the tension between my calling and purpose to do what I can to save what, you know, this world and savor the world. You mm. know, that's a quote I know we talk about a lot. Um, it's, 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 it's a daily decision. It's a daily decision because I, I'm, I'm learning, Jimmy, that I don't know. I, I actually do know. Let me say it differently. I've come to believe that it is honoring my ancestors, not only to be of service and to do the work and to be purpose driven, but it is also honoring my ancestors to be healthy to thrive, to have joy, yes. to have delight, to have pleasure, to create, you know? And so I just, I'm naming that because I think it's a daily tension and choice that we make. Does that resonate with you? What's your experience with that? It really does. <laughs> Everything you say, you know, so much alike, I'm realizing as you're talking, um, you have to have the joy. You have to have, you have, to have the, the happiness. And as a journalist and in philanthropy, I mean, I, should, I tell my colleagues all the time, we can, we can bring joy into this work. The issues in which we're, we're, we're focusing on may be very serious. And you have to take pleasure, you have to take joy, fulfillment in, in this space and what we're doing, because otherwise you can't sustain it. That's right. You can, I mean, you can't sustain it at times, especially in the, in the darker moments of the moments of, of less, less illumination, less light. I mean, for me, someone really said, I mean, it was your talking, I was thinking about, uh, recently I was on a, a work call and as the open, opening question, kind of the check-in question was, which holiday is your favorite? And I said, Juneteenth. <laughs> and what I said, and which you may appreciate, Tony, I said, Juneteenth, but it's complicated because, and I said, frankly speaking, I feel like Juneteenth has been co-opted because I, I was celebrating Juneteenth before 20, 2020 in George Floyd's morning. I've, I've been celebrating Juneteenth for, for, for a long time. That's right. You know, doing the picnic in the park, the red velvet cake, the chicken, the collard greens, the, 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 the black-eyed peas with rice, the yeah. cornbread. You know, the jambalaya, like we had the spread, you know, yes. and the mixtape. Yeah. Mix <laughs> Come on, music. St. Louis. So like, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, so, like, it was like an all day affair, child friendly, intergenerational, multiracial, multinational. Like, it was everybody was invited. And we just, you know, we were all, we just celebrated freedom, you know, being free. Mm. And I said, like, for me, like, Juneteenth has always been a period of joy. But beyond that, like, you know, just finding joy in my music, listening to jazz or, you know, sometimes I'm in the car and I'll need, I'll need to pick me up and I'll put on Richard Pryor in yes. the car. Yes. You know, just to be, I need, I said, I need, I need Richard to help me laugh, you know, yeah. take me back, you know. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the laugh and the joy are essential to the journey. As passionate as Jimmy is about his profession, believe it or not, he didn't always want to be a journalist. When I was in college, I went to, attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and I thought I was going to be, I actually thought I was going to be a doctor, a physician, emergency room physician specifically. But I realized that's not where I was being called to. I pivoted to writing. I wanted to be a novelist, a poet. A lot of my early writing started in that place. But I, and I, but I saw journalism as, it's so funny looking back how the, how the world works, how the universe works. I thought, you know, doing journalism would be an opportunity to develop my, hone my craft as a writer. So I said to myself, I'll, I'll pursue journalism as a way of becoming a novelist, mm -hmm. becoming a poet. And, and it, as it turned out, I was meant to be a journalist. I loved it. I loved the travel. I loved building, building trust, building proximity with people, with communities, and, and having the opportunity for them to share their lives with me. You know, the yeah. process of getting someone to open up and trusting you enough to let you into their lives, let you into their 
emotions into their inner selves, that's a huge opportunity and responsibility. And, and I realized I was good at that. I could get people to talk to me regardless of their backgrounds, no matter mm-hmm. who, no matter their identities. And also becoming a journalist got me to New York City. You know, I, I moved to New York uh, for a fellowship with the Village Voice newspaper in the early 90s. And it was a really momentous time for a lot of reasons. It was the early 90s, but it's also still uh, in the throes of the AIDS epidemic. And so, you know, working in a place like the Village Voice where you had colleagues, you know, with Carposis carcinoma, they had AIDS, full-blown AIDS, and you could see it on their bodies. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were coming to work and then one day they, they weren't there. And you were living, you know, living in New York City, working in the village. I lived, actually lived in Alphabet City, which is not too far from the voices located. And, you know, on the street, you see people who are sick, who are frail. As soon, you, you make the assumption that they had AIDS, they had the bug. And so uh, it was just a really kind of a, it was a, it was just kind of a heady time, you know, in terms of health crises and in terms of racial relations in New York and nationally. But it was really kind of a, the perfect entry point for me to, to learn, understand what journalism was and could be, how it could be used for empowerment, for increasing visibility and representation, and for me specifically, to use to best use my voice. In the 1990s, Jimmy had his first major break reporting on a world conflict. He went on to cover the first war in the Congo, then named Zaire, alongside a photojournalist for Life magazine. That led me to covering a series of conflicts around the world, going back to Zaire when it became Congo, covering the genocide in Rwanda, going to Israel, Palestine territories, the Second Intifada, going to Colombia, going to Afghanistan, going to Sri Lanka, all these places of crisis and conflict around the world. Yes. And seeing people in distress, you know, you know, not only have my life be put at risk a number of times, but also seeing people killed, watching people die. It just really transformed me forever and really kind of centered me in terms of I'm a messenger, I'm a storyteller, you know, that no matter what capacity I, I, I no matter what place I stand in the world, no matter what form of role I have, you know, I am a messenger for others, particularly those who don't have the microphone, so to speak, that I have mm. to share their experiences and to share the knowledge that they have carried about inequities, about systemic injustices. Mm. I'd love to hear, Jimmy, you know, who are those voices today from where you sit? Who are we not listening to? The Black and Latino men and women who have been grappling with substance misuse for decades before the recent overdose crisis. I mean, as you know, and as your listeners can, can acknowledge, you know, we're very much in the throes of a overdose crisis in this country, particularly around, the, around fentanyl. Yes. And at the same time, for more than 50 years, but especially since the, the war on drugs launched in 1973, sorry, 1972 rather, there's been a war on black communities, black and Latino communities. And the survivors of that war who are predominantly black, who are predominantly Latino, their stories, their voices, their scars are not seen, are not, mm. are not their voices are not heard in this contemporary conversation around the overdose crisis. I try to speak for and carry the stories of the women, the girls who have endured, who are enduring sexual violence, domestic violence, the men and boys who are striving to combat that violence, women and girls, 
the men, the women who have endured the harshest treatment by the policing community across the country. As I mentioned before, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. For the past six, seven years, I've been working with residents of Ferguson to capture their stories about their lives before and the wake of Michael Brown Jr.'s murder in 2014. In fact, uh, next year is the 10th anniversary of Michael Brown Jr.'s murder. And the residents of the community, of that community with whom I've been working, we're, we're releasing a, a book project of old histories and oral testimonies about their experiences mm. in the wake of Michael Brown Jr.'s murder. But their stories and, and those of some of the communities like, like theirs have not been told, not being acknowledged. And I'm trying to speak for and, and, and support the voices of our indigenous brothers and sisters in this country, who probably more so than any other community have been made invisible. And I'm so proud to work with them yes. and work on their behalf to help them get the resources, to get the platforms they need to become more visible to have their, their intergenerational traumas acknowledged and addressed by the society at large. You know, we talked about joy and pleasure before, but joy and fulfillment for me in my life, a lot of it has come from being able to share the stories and help amplify the voices of those who are most marginalized in the society in particular, but globally as well. Mm -hmm. I know, and I know you know too, what it feels like to feel invisible or being made to feel like you don't have a voice yeah. or not being heard. And so any opportunity I, I have, I, I got to bring them into the room with me. Jimmy hasn't only lifted people up by telling their stories. He felt a calling to do something about what he was witnessing. So he began to engage in activism. And I was encountering women and girls who were survivors of rape as a weapon of war. And, you know, having the opportunity the pathway to not only be in close proximity with them, to be in community with them, you know, staying with them in their villages, in their towns, entering their homes for days at a, at a time, just listening to their stories, sitting by their bedside, um, in some cases while they were dying because of the sexual violence which they'd endured. It was, you know, it was transformative. Their story stayed with me as well. Yeah, you know, I was seeing this type of violence in other countries what was not I not seeing it in the United States? What was I not seeing in my community? Mm. And so I started writing about domestic violence issues, writing about domestic violence issues in the Black community and the Latinx community, understanding, you know, the issues that women and girls, particularly from communities of color, face every day, the violence and disenfranchisement they face at the hands of those who look like them. And why wasn't that being discussed? But also at the same time, Tulane, talking to visionaries, I would call them, men of color who were working in our communities and beyond to raise this as an issue for men and boys to address. That there has to be a conversation around masculinity and manhood, the frameworks in which boys become men, mm. where they, 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 they're, they're allowed to believe that they can treat women uh, inhumanely. They can treat women or, or you know, regard women with less than, um, full respect, full dignity. Yeah. And so as meeting these, meeting these men, men of color, white men, queer men working in these spaces, you know, I, I was inspired. I, I acknowledge the work they've done are still doing. My co-founders and I, we, we launched the MAP campaign in 2010, actually in Johannesburg, South Africa during the World Cup. 
So we wanted to seize on kind of the global spotlight that was that was shown on South Africa as a whole, but particularly in Johannesburg at that time. And so the idea was to bring together youth from different countries around the world, provide them with the training, with tools, with the connectivity, if you will. We wanted to build a network of youth who could, could support each other across geography to address gender-based violence in their respective countries, no matter what form it took. Yeah. So some countries, you know, some people were coming from conflict-affected countries, so they're dealing with rape as welcome of war. Others are dealing with a crisis of domestic violence. Others are dealing with, you know, dating or date rape, uh, dating violence, things like that. You know, others are dealing with harassment on the streets. But whatever, whatever form of, of uh, violence they were addressing, we wanted to have this network come together and build from there. It's interesting that at least the rhetoric in some spaces is changing. What's your sense? Because 2010 to where we are now, it's a, a healthy bit of time. Have you seen things shift? Do you see bright spots that encourage you? Or do you, you know, feel like most of that surface and we still have the same issues we had when you started Man Up Campaign? I think there has been some retrenchment, Tulane, mm. since the Me Too movement. Progress are true, but there's some retrenchment in terms of attitudes regarding true fulfillment of gender equity and justice. I see the retrenchment and the, kind of the, what I call the fallback, if you will, particularly in the space of reproductive access and justice, equity, particularly for women of color. I see retrenchment and the fallback in terms of kind of the, the popular conversations or depictions of women and girls, popular media, but also attitudes regarding sexual and gender-based violence against women and girls, lack of accountability. So, you know, I, I think there has been progress, market progress, and we've got to keep fighting. Yeah. We have to keep fighting to address harmful masculinity and ideals of manhood. I see progress from within a community and culture I love in hip-hop. I think more artists, producers, elders, if you will, hip-hop elders, mm-hmm understanding they have a responsibility, they have an opportunity to, and they have a credibility, most important of all. They're credible messengers. And so we need those credible messengers, whether it's hip hop, whether it's in TV or sports, or, you know, frankly speaking, the the guy on the corner, the guy on the court, you know, the the person from your church, the guy in the barbershop, whoever it is, reaching people where they are and helping them understand you have a responsibility and opportunity to help other brothers, younger and older, to think differently and behave differently in how we treat each other, but especially in how we treat our daughters, our sisters, our partners, our loved ones, our cousins, our mothers. You know, it's a perpetual struggle. And I, I mean, I'm okay with that, but it means that there have to be those next to me and behind me willing to kind of carry the baton, so to speak. And sometimes you have to let them know there's a baton you need to carry. Today, Jimmy continues his life of purpose as a principal at the Skoll Foundation. Whether as a journalist, activist, or philanthropist, Jimmy fights to give a mic to communities whose voices have been shunned. And speaking of mics, it's time for me to pass the mic around to all of you and ask Jimmy your questions. If you'd like to contribute to future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or X. Tulane Montgomery will get you there, whichever platform you're using. There you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. I want to present the first question, which is, we are in an era of misinformation 
as a journalist, how would you advise everyone day to day to get good information when trying to make good decisions? That's a great question, Julia. I think I thank your listener for that question. I mean, I think I think about this all the time. It's, I got to share this with you, Julia. You may laugh, but I, I try to work on this with my mother. My mother, bless her heart, she's a news junkie, but she only has one source of news. Uh-huh. And I'm like, ma, I'm like, you get, I'm like, I, I feel you, I get it. You, I know you like the personalities on the station, but you got to diversify your, your news intake. Like you got, I mean, as a journalist, but also as an informed citizen. Yes. I mean, I, I'll tell you between, I, I mean, it frustrates my family sometimes. I, I and this, this is extreme. I, I read five papers a day, five newspapers a day. I read five papers a day. I, I listen to NPR. I listen to MSNBC. Like I, 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 I I'm taking a multitude of news sources every single day because I know, I know every news source has bias. Yeah. Every news source is slanted. Mm. Before I have a conversation with someone about what's happening in the world, I have at least three to five sources to cite before I say anything because I want to be informed. And it, it may, it may be extreme to some people, but I'm like, you know what, especially in this age of mis and disinformation, particularly targeting people of color. Let me repeat that. Particularly targeting people of color. You have to be serious about how you gather information. You have to be serious about how you distill the news you're receiving and then how you speak about the news you're receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything, Jimmy, that you wanted to touch on that we did not get to in this conversation? Sure. I want to share something with personal. The process and the journey of my colleagues and I, my co-founders and I, building the Man Up campaign, like laying the, laying the groundwork for it and launching it you know, in 2010, we launched it, but it took steps to do that. It took yeah. a lot of steps to do that. The fundraising, the strategy, all that, the, the media component, and then the work afterwards. In the process of doing that, after we had launched the uh, MEDAP campaign with our convening in South Africa in 2010, two months after launching the MEDAP campaign, I had a heart attack. I had a heart attack, and, and from, that, from that incident, my kidneys failed. And so I spent four years on kidney dialysis awaiting a transplant while still trying to maintain Man Up campaign. Eventually, I had the blessing of receiving a kidney from my best friends who gave me a kidney after four years of being on dialysis. And I, just, I say that, I share that, because when it happened to me, Tulane, I was young. I was, I was, I was young, younger than I am now, for sure. I was young. And I, was, I thought I was in the best health of my life at that time. I was firing on all cylinders. I was doing all this work as a journalist, as a co-founder of Manic Campaign, as a thought leader speaking at conferences, going to school, speaking at convenings, writing. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do it all because I thought that was, that's, how, that's how we got things done. And I paid a price for it with my health. And I just want to stress, you know, with you, and we'll talk offline for sure, but also for your listeners, the importance of self-care, the importance of listening to your body, the importance of being at your best to do your best. You know, I sacrificed my health. I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm sure I sacrificed years off my life because I didn't listen to my body. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't take regard of what I needed to stay well. And I say, especially for all of us, but especially for, you know, for the, for my sisters and brothers of color, in particular, given the systemic health inequities facing this country, given what we know about health conditions that afflict communities of color. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cardiac issues, diabetes, and so forth. We got to take care of ourselves. And that's one of my few regrets. I didn't take care of myself better. 
I'm good now, but you know, that's because I, I got a kidney transplant. You know, right. that's because I had a heart attack and I had to deal with that. I was on dialysis. I had to deal with that. And I didn't have to do that. If I'd been, if I'd been more vigilant about my health, like things could have been different for me. I just want to say that to you. That's something curious about you and your work, Tulane. I'm saying that to you, Tulane Montgomery. Take care of you, but also to, to you know, to, to your listeners, take care of yourself. I mean, the, the world, there will always be challenges that we got to face, but we can't face the world. We can't, we can't dance in our joy if we don't take care of ourselves first. Mm. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for sharing that, sharing your story. I am so thankful. I thank God that you are well and that you've come to the other side of that. That doesn't always happen. And so I'm grateful. And I hear and receive the guidance for myself and also share it with the Saymore community. And I'm rooting for you always. And I'm so grateful to call you friend. Yeah. Same here today. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a, this, is, this is a gift. I mean, being in conversation with you, you don't know it's a gift. Seriously, I just, you're, just, you're my sister. I, just, I love you. And I'm so proud of you and the spaces you hold in this world. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.